welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the podcast that features conversations with writers of all types. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Bobo Botanicals, B-A-B-O Botanicals. Bobo Botanicals offers your family non-toxic and pure hair, skin, and sun solutions created with effective natural or organic ingredients. You can buy their products on Amazon or check them out at bobobotanicals.com. I'm here today with Priscilla Gilman. Priscilla is the author of the beautiful and heartfelt memoir, The Anti-Romantic Child, A Story of Unexpected Joy from 2011, which was her story of raising her special needs son, Benjamin. Priscilla, a New York City native, is a Yale undergrad, master's, and PhD graduate, and a former assistant professor of English at both Yale and Vassar. She also worked as a literary agent. She's published essays in many publications, including the New York Times, Red Book, and Real Simple, and is a book critic for the Boston Globe. She also speaks frequently at schools and organizations about autism, parenting, education, and the arts. Her second book, The Critic's Daughter, is coming out most likely in 2020. She currently lives in Manhattan with her two sons, ages 19 and almost 16. I'm here with Priscilla Gilman. Welcome, Priscilla. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm just going to jump right in because I have so many questions for you. Sure. Um, first of all, how did you remember all the incredibly detailed scenes in The Anti-Romantic Child? Um, quotes and everything that you included. Like, I can't even remember when my fourth kid walked. Everybody's always asking, like, what did, you know, when did this person do this? I have no idea. How did you remember it all? What did you do? You know, it's funny. I think on the one hand, I I have amazing memory. I always have. Like, my friends would ask me, so what did I do? Like, at that party, what was I wearing? And I would remember exactly what they wore. So I do kind of have a photographic memory. It's interesting. I think, actually, Benj gets his prodigious memory from me. On the other hand, though, I did a lot of writing through the entire experience, not towards the book, but I emailed my friends, my mom, and then I kept a little journal. It wasn't like a physical journal, but I kept a little journal on my computer, and I would just write down notes, and part of the reason I was doing that was to give reports to the speech therapist, to the psychologist, whatever it was. So if there was like a development with Benj, I would write it down, and I kept a list of quotes from him in order to track his language development. And I have to say, it was just so incredibly helpful. And I basically had this old computer that had all my Vassar emails on it, and I couldn't transfer them. So I kept this rickety Mm -hmm. computer and kept going back and, like, looking up those emails. Um, And they were a treasure trove. So what inspired you to make this into a memoir? Oh, wow. that's And tell listeners also what how the, the memoir shaped sort of turned out to be with the narrative weaved in with the poetry. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting... I have to give um, utter credit to my literary agent, Tina Bennett, who was my close friend in grad school at Yale. And she's in the book. She's the person who says, oh, you're in love with him about your your, (laughs) first husband. Um, And she dropped out of grad school and started working as an agent. um, And we, she's one of my best friends, so we kept in touch. And she'd say, what are you working on? What are you writing about? And I was a romantic poetry specialist, so I was giving talks about parenting and, like, the theme of parenting and children in in romantic literature. And when Benj was in preschool, I started giving presentations with the director of his preschool to, like, early intervention conferences at school conferences. And I was sending her talks that I had given in these different contexts, and she said, you know what, I think you should take these and put them together. And I think that... 
you should blend the literature with these talks about early intervention and parenting, and I'll try to sell it as an article. Right. So it was an article for a long time. And I worked on it as an article intermittently for about three years. Wow. Okay. And she sent it out to every single viable venue that you could think of that would take a piece. And I remember it was like, okay, the New Yorker passed, the Paris Review passed, and I remember we got down to the American Scholar and they passed. And I said, I thought, okay, you know, this is not going to happen, whatever, it's fine. And she said, you know what, I think this is a book proposal. And I think you need to work on it as a proposal. And then it was another year, year and a half that I worked on it intermittently, because at this point I was working as a literary agent full-time, had two little kids, I was divorced. And then we sold it as a book in 2008, and it came out in 2011. And how long did you spend writing it after that? the actual I took six months off from my job mm-hmm. um, to really get like a complete first draft. And then I turned in the first draft, and my editor, Harper Collins, said, you need to add a lot more. Okay. You need to write about your marriage. I basically didn't because I wanted to protect my ex-husband. And you need to write about your childhood. And so all the material about my father. I loved all that. Yeah, my childhood. <laughs> I really, great. I'm glad. She had good advice. Yeah, was she great. was wonderful. Yeah, was- Claire Wachtel, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so it ended up being, it was supposed to be like a 50,000 word book and it ended up being a 90,000 word book. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, so in your essay, and I, maybe I didn't frame this right, the book um, is mostly about, while it includes your husband and your family, mostly about uh, coping with and raising a child, ben who, Benjamin Bend, who has more yeah. special needs, including um, at the time of the book, um, hypolexia, yep. sensory disorder, mm-hmm. fine motor, gross motor delays, yep, um, that type of situation. But you didn't want to label it as saying he's autistic or Asperger's. You said in the book, right. Aspergery, right, something right, like that right, to make right. it easier. Yeah. Um, so you say in your essay you wrote for Mother Lode in the New York Times in 2013 when Ben, who in the book, never gets older than about eight or so. Yeah, he's about nine when about it ends, nine. yeah. Um, so when he's 13, I was like voraciously reading this because I'm like, what happened to this boy? Um, <laughs> but um, you wrote, parenting Ben, a child very different from the one I'd imagined having, has impressed upon me just how important it is to move beyond normative expectations about what our children will or won't be, should or shouldn't do. So can you talk in the beginning what it was like for you to have a child unlike the one you expected to have and when and how you realized he had some differences, unique differences? Yeah. So the, the subtitle of my book is A Story of Unexpected Joy. And that was very I, – I remember when the book came out um, and I was on MSNBC Live and Thomas Roberts was interviewing me, and he said, the anti-romantic child, you're going to get a lot of flack for that title. <laughs> and I said, well, the subtitle is a story of unexpected joy. So initially, you know, I use um, images and quotations from romantic poetry about playful, imaginative, spontaneous, affectionate children to talk about how Benj seemed initially to be the opposite of this, what I was expecting as a parent, to have a child that wanted to snuggle with me, that wanted to play with me, um, that was able to cavort around in nature. And Benj was so physically not only frail, but also timid in a way. And um, the experience ultimately was one of growth for me in coming to realize that projecting or expecting something of your children 
uh, is not going to lead to their most successful and joyful blooming. And I, w- I really wanted to tune into well, who Benj was and not what I thought he was going to be or wanted him to be. Yep. Um, and that quote, thank you for reminding me of that quote because I like it a lot. Um, it's, very, it's very true. It's very true. And it's become even more true. Um, and that was when Benj was 13 and he's now 19. 19. I know, it's shocking. And the most latest piece that I've written about him is a piece that I wrote. I don't know if you've read this, but I wrote for Slate about Benjamin and David Bowie. And that sort of takes him through his high school graduation. Uh, And he's been on a gap year for the last year. Awesome. And then he's going to college? He's going to Vassar. No way. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yep. came full circle. (laughs) Where he went to preschool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and in the interview that you mentioned that you did for MSNBC, uh, which I watched, which was great, um, it said that one out of 110 kids is on the autistic spectrum, and for boys, that figure is one out of 70. And now you've become like a leading autism parenting expert. So what does that mean? And for parents out there wondering if their child is on the spectrum or what to do about it, what would you tell them? Yeah, and you know, those numbers have actually, um, I think about a month or two ago, there was a new, they released new numbers, and it's even more, like the prevalence is even greater. And that's, I think, in large part due to more sensitive diagnostic tools and people being less afraid to put the label on their child or accept the label for their child, I would say, not put the label on their child. And that was something, you know, um, Benj did not get the diagnosis until he was about 11 or 12. And I think in large part that's because... When he was first evaluated at the Ill Child Study Center by a wonderful psychologist, she said he's too emotionally related to get the diagnosis. And I thought, okay, that's fine. He doesn't need the diagnosis. You don't need the diagnosis unless it unlocks services. And he had such deficits in so many areas that we were getting services for free from the state. And that's really one of the major reasons why you want to seek out the label is to get services. But one of the things that publishing my book taught me is how important it is for me. I don't want to shy away from saying Benjamin is autistic uh, because there's nothing wrong with being autistic. There's nothing to fear in that label, I've learned. Um, In fact, I think that autism comes with a host of incredible strengths often for these kids. And I feel it's important in order to help other families and other kids and also to help Benjamin fully own his identity, mm-hmm. um, to say he is he does have autism. He is autistic. It's not a disease. I don't even really like the word disorder anymore. Maybe condition. Um, it is a disability. Uh, he does need special accommodations. He will be getting those at Vassar, which is one of the reasons why he's going to Vassar as opposed to a Yale, which I don't think is quite ready like what's for an, a kid what's like What's an Benj? example of an accommodation he might have to get now? Um, being able to take a test in a quiet room mm-hmm. that doesn't have distractions around him. He's guaranteed a single room okay. at Vassar. That's very important because accommodating to somebody else's schedule and the sensory overload of having somebody play music or, you know, come in late. Um, I mean, I think it's hard to have a roommate for all of us. Yeah. I remember my own I mean, roommate was, <laughs> so I'm like, Ben, you're kind of lucky you can yeah. get your own room. Um, and also as a musician, to be able to make his music on his own. Um, so some other accommodations, which, you know, he, he needs less and less, but the ability to say, um, to have directions read aloud instead of having just reading them on the page because he's not necessarily going to get intonation and tone. Those are some of the things that are that are challenging for him. Um, but I do think it's very important. So what I would say to parents who are concerned that 
perhaps their child is autistic, I would say uh, there's nothing to fear when someone tells you that they think that your child might be on the spectrum. It's really any kind of evaluation or diagnosis. What's always helped me is to look at it as a way to understand my child better and just get more information about the strategies and the approaches that are going to help my child bloom. So, and it has helped Benjamin too, I think emotionally, because I remember he used to say when he would have a meltdown um, or be freaking out about something and he would say, am I the only kid in the world who feels this way? And I, and one of the things that owning his identity as as an autistic person has done for him is that he says, I know that this is often hard for autistic people. So this is a challenging situation for me. And I'm going to bring earplugs with me because it's hard for me. And it's given him a sense of solidarity with other people who have autism. And it's given him a sense of feeling less alone, which I think is really, really important. Um, So that's, and I I don't know if you know this, but we, um, I wrote a piece about Christmas and Benj for Real Simple. And in the piece, it talked about how we we love to sing Christmas carols together. So we ended up making a Christmas album. We recorded it professionally. And we, one of the reasons that he wanted to do that was he wanted to, he said, it's time for me. I want to show my face in Real Simple. He was in the photograph, which is the first time that he's ever done that. I had had said to the editor, I don't, I want to protect his privacy. And I always have. And then his therapist said to me, you know, he might be ready. You should ask wow. him. Yeah. Give him the option of doing it if he wants to. And he said, Mom, I'm nervous, but I want people to see my face um, because I want them to see that I'm happy and that I am not embarrassed or ashamed of being autistic. And we didn't make much from the CD, but the proceeds that we did make, we gave to organizations that help autistic teenagers make a successful transition to college or employment because they don't have to go to college. That's another thing that I would say. There's a different path for everybody. Yeah. Did you ever get, speaking of children's privacy, did you ever get any pushback about how much you were sharing about him at such a young age when he couldn't, didn't have the wherewithal to say, you know, please don't write this or. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, I've had people people say... People give me a hard time, some people, about, you know, the random snippets I might include in an article about a a kid of mine. So I always try to ask them, what do you think? But my little kids are so little. Yes. This is a whole whole book. Yes. I think it's beautiful what you did. I just wondered, has anyone in your life given you any... Any grief for it? <laughs> no one, no one in my private life is giving me grief for it. But, but absolutely on on social media, yeah. And I think um, it was funny when I was I was doing conversations with editors when I was deciding which editor I was going to go with for the book. And one of the editors said to me, the first question she asked me was, "Are you worried about how Benjamin is going to react to this?" And that, to me, like the fact that that was the first thing that came into her mind, I was like, this is not the right person for this book. Because I actually didn't tell him or my younger son that I was writing a book about the family Mm -hmm. um, until it was done. I didn't show it to anyone in the family until I had to legally. Because HarperCollins was like, you were like, you need your mother to sign (laughs) off on this. Your ex-husband needs to sign off on this. Really? Everybody? Everybody. Everybody. Well, they gave me a list of the people, and then I had to give it to them. Um, but I really wanted to write, I, it was so important to me to write 
honestly, on the one hand, honestly, and on the other hand, kindly. And that's like a difficult balance to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really did, on the one hand, write the book as an act of, um, I, I would say, outreach to other families because I felt incredibly alone. There were no books that I read when I was going through this or resources. Most of the resources said, you know, kids like Benj will, 80% of them will end up in institutions. You know, um, they were all about sort of drastically lowering um, your expectations of what could happen with the child. And I, I had to kind of forge my own way and at each place and each point um, focus on Benj rather than any generalizations. So I really wanted to write a very individual story. And um, But on the other hand, it really was, in my heart of hearts, like it, it's a love story. I say that on the first page. And I hope that anybody who reads this book will understand and appreciate and fall in love with Benj. And so I see the book always as sort of going ahead of Benj as an act of advocacy for him and a way for people to appreciate and understand and adore him the way I do. Um, I think it also allows people to adore you because honestly, no, seriously, (laughs) I was reading the book and I'm just like, wow, look at what a tireless advocate you were for him. I mean, every step of the way with this teacher and this, I mean, I understand that's what we do as parents. It's just what you do. You have to like make sure, but it was just the nonstop. And when I heard like the scenes when you, you have to sing him to sleep for half an hour. I was like, oh my God, I can, you know, I'm like reading book after book and I'm like, oh my gosh. And if I had to sing on top of it, like. Well, the singing for me was really fun. I'm a musical theater girl, but. It's just the same, but like every night that that's required for bedtime, like. I feel like bedtime comes at the worst time of the day because you need the most, like, you know, of every emotional resource when you're the most tired yourself. So, yeah. anyway. It's funny when people say, like, how did you do this? And, like, how did you muster the energy? It's funny. My mother is a literary agent. And so I sort of grew up. My mother is an incredible advocate. Like, Mm -hmm. that's what she does. And as a professor, when I was a teacher... I saw myself, I guess, I mean, I didn't see myself at the time, but looking back at it, I see that I was an advocate for the literature and also an advocate for my students. And, um, you know, and I've become an advocate for all autistic people and really all children. uh, And I consider myself still an advocate for literature. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, it was just, I didn't question it. Like I never thought I was just like in this mode where I love this kid so much and at every moment I've just got to be fighting for him mm-hmm. and then I've got to teach him how to fight for himself. That was really And you also important. did such a beautiful job of writing not only about Ben but about your other son James yeah. um, and how, you know, how he dealt with that and how you as a parent had to meet both their needs sort of simultaneously even though they were very different boys. I mean as most parents kids are but in in particular. Yes. So how did you how did you make sure that James wasn't overlooked that you balanced it all so well? Yeah, it's funny. I wrote a piece for HuffPost parents called Ernie and Bert's Mother. <laughs> um, I, and, and you just said, you know, essentially, like, they're very, very different. But it's really just, as I think Benjamin is for an individual child, it's really just an exaggerated version of what all parents go through. So it is, that's how I sort of saw this as a universal parenting story. Um, because we all have, we all can look at our kids and say, how did these two children come from the same set of parents? Like, it's crazy how different they are. And, um, James actually turned out, I mean, I don't write about it much 
in this book. I've written about it in some pieces since. And I and one day, James is always like, Mom. He used to say when he was little, Mommy, when are you going to write a book about me? <laughs> no. Um, but, I, you know, he actually turned out to be dyslexic. Okay. So I had hyperlexia and dyslexia. So I actually literally had two brains that were opposite, like diametrically opposed. And um, and he also had some social anxiety, which he's very introverted. Benj is actually very extroverted. Hmm. He's an autistic extrovert. Um, when he was quiet, it was because he was on sensory overload. But once he got over that, he's now, like, if he walks in, he's the life of the party. <laughs> he loves parties, and James is still kind of shy and on the fringes. I think, and, you know, I'll often say, I feel like I have an inclusive classroom in my apartment. <laughs> you know, like I have. And I parent them in very different ways. And it's really about sort of tuning into what each of them needs. They need different tones of voice when they need to be disciplined. Um, Benj responds to like clear and loud and aggressive to get his attention. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not okay. Or that needs to stop or whatever. James will get overwhelmed by that and he needs a different approach to that. Um, their relationship is so moving to me. They're very close now, actually. Um, they've worked it out. And I remember when there's one funny um, story that kind of says a lot about the relationship. James was with my ex-husband picking Benj up from a psychologist appointment. I think James must have been like six and, and Benj was nine. And the psychologist came out, and this is the same person who evaluated him in the book when he was three. Yeah. And she said, hi, Jamesy, how are you? What's going on? And he said, I need to say something to you. Benjamin is not being a good brother Aww. to me. And Benjamin was aghast. He was horrified. Oh, no. Oh, no. What am I doing? What can I do better? And so they had a whole session where the psychologist kind of mediated between them and said, James, what do you need more of from Benj? And I want him to ask how my day was. And so every, just, and it's now become very natural, sort of second nature to Benj, but he would come home from school and I would hear this, it would, my heart, it rend my heart. I would hear him going, hi, James, how was your day? (laughs) (laughs) And now they're just so lovey with each other and so sweet. That's so nice. Yeah. Um, and then in the, in the midst of raising Benj and advocating so tirelessly on his behalf, you also went through a divorce yourself, um, from a man that you originally thought was a safe choice, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. um, but from whom throughout the book you became increasingly, or your life rather, became increasingly estranged, Mm -hmm. especially given his own issues, which you sort of allude to maybe he had some of these issues himself, but you never said anything like that. And then you wrote, I couldn't see any end in sight to this arid, empty, sterile life. I felt my spark, my dynamism, my optimism draining away. I sensed my own natural sunniness, my bright radiance dimming. <gasps> the bright radiance is a quote from Wordsworth. Yeah. Oh, so mm-hmm. beautiful. So be honest, there must have been times throughout this whole thing when you felt a little sorry for yourself. I mean, you were going through so much stuff, especially then your father gets so sick and he's all the way in Japan. And I was just reading this thing, like, <laughs> how much more can this woman take? Like, how did you cope with this divorce and the hurdles of the parenting, your desolateness and all of it with only occasional, you know, sitting on the bathroom floor <laughs> Crying moments. Yes, there were those. There were those sitting in the bathroom or getting in the shower and sorry, crying. Sorry, in the shower. Yes, sorry, in that's the shower. me. I'm on the bathroom floor. <laughs> You're in the shower. Everybody has their place. The water masks yeah. the crying. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I I will say that I look back at the period now and I think I 
do not understand how I got through that. And it makes everything that's come later seem so easy in comparison to that time. But I think there are a couple things. One, um, I really don't think I ever felt sorry for myself. I just, you know, I had gone through this experience with my ex-husband where when we met, his mother was dying of cancer and she died a year after we got married. We took care of her for a year and she died and she was 54. And his father had died of MS like six months before we met and he was 54. And I just always had this feeling that, you know, these terrible things had happened to incredible people that I adored and I just accepted it that bad I can bad when bad things happen to good people you know um and I just um it didn't seem um unusual in a way it just felt to me like and and I think the way that I coped with it was to not waste time or energy giving in to oh, why me? Or like, woe is me? I'm just like, I have to get up every morning and I have to do what I need to do today. And that was the way that I, that I got through it. I just tried not to think long range, even with Benj. If I started to think like, oh God, what's going to happen when I need to apply to a different school? You know, when the school yep. ends, um, thank God his school actually then en- added a middle and high school. So I never had to apply again until college. Um, but you know, all of those hurdles that you're thinking of are like adolescence. Oh my gosh, how am I going to deal with that? I was just like, I need to focus on this year, this month, this week, and I just can't think too far into the future. However, Zibi, I will say, you know, I'm writing this book now about my father. Yeah, tell me about that book. And, you know, writing it, I'm realizing that it probably would have been better if I had uh, cried a little bit more um, and expressed how overwhelmed I was a little bit more when I was going through all this because I think there's a kind of delayed mourning that I've been going through for the past. And, and writing this book is putting it to rest. Like, it's... Um, it's basically an exorcism in a sense of that grief that I didn't really, I didn't have time to feel or experience because I was basically getting up in the morning, going to work, parenting with two children that each had special needs. And I actually ended up having them both in special schools and suing the DOE to get their tuition reimbursed. I had a file cabinet for each kid. You know, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, and so I think I would advise other people, like, sometimes for me, I, I should have slowed down a little bit more and, and allowed myself to feel that sadness and that sense of regret a little bit more because it did, um, it will out eventually, right? right? You can't repress it and suppress it indefinitely because it does have effects. So the book about my father, um, which Norton is publishing, it's called The Critic's Daughter. This At this writing, it is called The Critic's okay. Daughter. Um, I won't hold you <laughs> um, So my father was a, he taught at Yale Drama School and he was a drama critic for Newsweek and The Nation. And um, my parents split up when I was 10 and it was extremely bitter, vicious divorce. And I was very, very close to my father and he was the one who shaped my vision of romantic parenting, which you know from The Anti-Romantic Child. Um, so, you know, in a sense, like, if my first book was a book about being a mother, this is a book about being a daughter. So it is a book about parenting, hmm. I suppose, at the yeah. same time, yeah. right? It's kind of the inverse. It's kind of the flip side. And I think one of the reasons that I decided to do it was that people really responded to the scenes about my father. 
Those were amazing. So in my book, they were in my so first book, vivid. Like I feel um, like I could see the two of these so well. Oh, he seemed amazing. And yeah, he was an amazing person. Very, very, very complicated. And so one of the tricky things about this book is acknowledging my father's dark side and mm-hmm. acknowledging my father's flaws. Um, seeing him whole against the sky, to use that phrase yep, that I yep. used from Rilke about yep. Benge. Um, so it really is. I, I think if if I you know, I, I wanted the Andrew Mike to Child to be a universal parenting story of how we none of us get the child that we expect and right. how you adapt to that. This is a universal story of what it is to be a child and look at your parent and you idealize them and then the veil is ripped off and you see them with all their flaws and their weaknesses and their frailties. And in my father's case, a lot of very dark stuff and how you come to terms with that and forgive and get back to that place of pure love in a wiser, sort of more, um, with a more sort of capacious vision of them. Um, so it really is similar to Antiromantic Child in that sense, that sort of three-act structure. Okay. Right, of like what you yep, expect, yep, what you yep. think, what you idea, how you idealize, and then the falling away from that, and then coming back in the end and recognizing and affirming what was beautiful and true and pure that's still there in your relationship to the parent that's gone. And it's also a book about grief. You know, it falls into that category of, like, Year of Magical Thinking. So good. I mean, yeah. The Long Goodbye by Megan O'Rourke. Have you read that? Oh, I love it. So good. So good. Yeah. I think that's one of the things about parenting that, like, people don't tell you so much at the beginning. Like, these ideals you have. Like, these kids, they come at, like... Having had four kids, at the beginning, I felt I had some control over what they became. Yes. And now that I've had four, I realize I have, like, maybe 5%, <laughs> maybe 5% of it, maybe. Yes. Maybe their manners. Yes. And, like, their, maybe yes. their clothing yes. 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 But in the bulk of them, that's just who they are. It so is. I so agree with you. Like, Benjamin, the minute he came out, he is this, and, and people will say this to me, you know, when they ask me, like, when did I know that there was something different? Instantly. Mm-hmm. Instantly, as soon as I held him. And I look at the pictures of him in the hospital, you know, on the second day where they come yep, in. Yep. I talk in the book about how, you know, he had this big hematoma. Yep. And the photographer comes in to take, like, the cheery <laughs> picture. And the photographer <laughs> is like, oh, my gosh. And, like, pulls the hat down over his head. Um, but I look at the picture and he's, like, a little intense, mad scientist with a gleam in his eye. And Jamesy, I still call him Jamesy even though he's, he's James. Because um, he's almost 16. Isn't he 16 in two weeks? Um, you know, he was just this love bug from the minute he came out he was and but you know intense and and difficult and challenging in his own way Mm -hmm. polar opposite and he's you can still see you look at those baby pictures that is who he is yeah yeah just you gotta just ride with it. You just don't know what you're gonna get. It's like the ultimate, the ultimate mystery, and you gotta just ride it out the rest of your life, isn't it? <laughs> Hope and you it, like it. And, and you know what's it's like? That's why being a parent. I mean, I always say this. You know, I've, I've recently become a meditation teacher. Oh, that's right. I wanted to ask you. About that. And because meditation is one of the other things that got me through parenting. Okay, good. These good. kids and the difficult time. I started meditating when I was 21. Uh, and it was my refuge, and it was what allowed me to come home from teaching all day um, with to a baby who needed to nurse and, and a four-year-old autistic uh, kid who was challenging and just going, being able to go and have those 20 minutes of meditating saved me. I mean, I would come back, and I would feel some clarity and some ability to get through the night. But, you know, they say – I often say that parenting has been – an incredible practice for me in learning to accept uncertainty, mm-hmm. in learning that 
um, we can't, we, we have so little control, you were saying, over children, but we have so little control in general. It's true. I know. Right? And like you I and I are, I are, like are, are recovered that. perfectionists <laughs> and type A's and we went to the same school that sort of drilled that into us of like, yeah. you have so, you know, if you work hard and you keep moving forward, like you can accomplish anything and you have so much control over it and ultimately so much of life is chance and luck and uh, the best that we can do is just learn how to sort of navigate right? The unexpected and open ourselves to it, right? Remember that quote from Toni Morrison that I put at the end of the book, right? If you surrender to the air, you could yes. ride it. Yes. Um, which is actually from my best Brearley Friends yearbook page. <laughs> Benjamin's godmother. Oh my gosh. Yes. To, I'm going to be like scrolling through the yearbook. Yes. <laughs> it's so true. Parenting. You're just like, you're like in the ocean on a boat. Like, let's yep. see where it goes. But not, sometimes not even in a boat. Sometimes yeah. not even in a boat. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> Yeah. Well, anyway. Um, so any last minute, like, parting words to other aspiring writers out there who are trying to do some sort of a memoir yeah. about their own family or children? You know, it's funny. I, I spoke earlier about this sort of um, winding road to becoming a book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, it ties into what we were saying about the unexpected, right? You may – I never thought that I would use my academic training – um, and what I studied and worked on and taught when I was a professor in a mainstream book. Mm-hmm. And it ended up like profoundly shaping that book and informing it. So I think one word of wisdom would be just be true to your individual path and your individual voice and things in your life and your experience that you might never think would become part of a book um, might and to have faith that it's a long, long road. I mean, from the time that I started giving these talks to the time we sold the book as a proposal was four and a half years. And then the book came out three years after that. And this book about my father has been germinating in me for, I would say, 10, 15 years. So, and I think as a mother, um, we, we have to focus on our children so much of the time. And there may be a year where you're not getting that much writing done, but it's okay in the broad scheme of things because you're living and you're experiencing and everything that you're living and experiencing, if you're a memoirist, is ultimately going to end up in a piece or a book. Right. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, that's, that's some words of wisdom that I would give. And then also just to be, to choose your readers carefully, because remember you were saying before, like, have people given you grief? Mm-hmm. And as a memoirist, people will say, um, you know, aren't you worried about exposing this person or betraying this person? And I think only show your stuff at early stages to people who are not going to make judgments like that, who yeah. are going to respond to the work to help you with craft and or to help you dig deeper. And those are the kinds of readers that my agent is my best and first reader. She's, I mean, it's, I'm lucky because she's my right. close friend and she knows all this, but um, you know, and then my ba- one of my other best friends from Brearley, Jamie Lenhardt, who's an incredible singer songwriter, and she will help steer me towards like, how did this make you feel? Like mm-hmm. you're narrating this, yeah. um, but what's the emotional core of this? And didn't this make you feel uh, like the question that you asked? Didn't you feel sorry for yourself? Like that's a that's a really great kind of question. Um, and I have another friend who's a brilliant, who works in advertising, is a brilliant creative director, and he um, is also really, really good at kind of pushing me and saying, 
okay, you've, you've narrated a fact, but what's the emotional ramification of that fact? Like, how did you feel right. in the wake of that? And ask yourself that. Um, so it's readers who ask good questions and aren't afraid to push you. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I, and it's funny because I'm writing about my father as a critic, right? And I am a critic also. I'm a book critic for the Boston Globe. So it's a book about criticism also. And, but um, I always want honest, rigorous feedback. And so one thing that I think that memoirists, if you want to be a successful memoirist, you need to get over is only wanting thumbs ups and this is so amazing. Mm-hmm. It, it's not helpful yeah, no. at all. It's not helpful. Unless it's really just that amazing. <laughs> but I'm, even what's that amazing? That I would write, but obviously. So. <laughs> anyway. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sharing your story with Benj and everything that's come after. And I can't wait to read your next book. Thank you so much for having this wonderful, wonderful podcast. And hopefully we can encourage moms to read more books in great. the interstices of their days. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, sponsored by Babo Botanicals. B-A-B-O, Babo Botanicals. Thanks.